you know, maybe in the 1970s or the 80s, if you're going to go after pornography, you really had to make some kind of a risk. Now it's just download an app onto your phone and you can have endless pornography. This is how American culture sees everything. As long as what you do doesn't directly infringe upon my rights or my welfare, then it's fair game. Hi everyone, this is Brooks Popwell. It's no secret that with the rise of the internet, the availability and use of pornography has exploded in our culture. To give you an idea of exactly where we're at now, the anti-porn group Fight the New Drug reports that on just one of the most popular porn sites, people watched 4.5 billion hours of porn in a year. 4.5 billion hours! That is an almost incomprehensible amount. Get this, it's equal to 5,000 centuries of pornography, all viewed in a single year. There's a reason for this epidemic, though. Porn is a powerful form of deception, and it's easy to get trapped by it. So in today's show, I want to examine and dismantle some of the lies people believe about pornography. First, we'll look behind the deceptive and alluring surface that porn presents at the history of the industry itself and what really went on behind closed doors. Second, Nate Dancer explodes the myth that porn only affects the person using it. So if you or someone you know is watching porn, I hope this episode challenges your perspective about how serious it really is. This is Purity for Life. people who contributed to the explosive emergence of X-rated movies in the 70s, such as Hugh Hefner, Larry Flint, John Holmes, and Linda Lovelace, to name a few. But the most important players were the gangsters lurking behind the scenes out of the public's eye. Members of the mafia had been making a modest income by producing stag films for at least 10 years when, in 1971, some associates of the Colombo organization, one of five mafia families in New York City, hit the jackpot after producing an enormously successful X-rated comedy. Filmed mostly in a motel on Biscayne Boulevard in North Miami, the movie cost less than $25,000 to produce, but within a couple of years, the mob had raked in a staggering $50 million in profit. This windfall attracted other mafiosos such as Robert DiBernardo, a capo in the Gambino organization, who presented himself more like a Wall Street broker than a smut peddling thug. He began Star Distributors, which became the main supplier of pornography in New York City. He was also responsible for bringing all of the pornographers under the control of the mob. Another key player was Michael Zaffirano, who was the main contact between the mob and the porn industry. He often mediated disputes between various mafia families over the production of X-rated movies. By the mid-80s, most of the porn industry had moved to Southern California. 
According to testimony before the Mies Commission by Captain James Doherty of the LAPD, almost 90% of adult films were produced in Los Angeles. Chief Daryl Gates went on to say that at least 85% of the porn industry was controlled by organized crime. As the sales of pornographic movies continued to skyrocket, the FBI decided to investigate. Early in 1977, they launched the largest undercover operation in their history, known as MyPorn, which is short for Miami Pornography. Agents Patrick Livingston and Bruce Olofsky set up shop in Miami, posing as distributors of adult entertainment. What was initially targeted as a six-month probe with a modest budget of $25,000 eventually developed into an extremely dangerous two-and-a-half-year investigation of the mafia's involvement in obscenity, costing taxpayers almost a half million dollars. Bill Kelly, described by one reporter as having a tight-lipped, no-nonsense determination to root out pornographers, was assigned the task of training the two would-be smut peddlers. He spent a couple of weeks teaching the agents the ins and outs of the trade. Years later, Kelly recalled the sort of things he warned them to avoid. When you go buy videos, don't offer to pay $60 a piece. You offer $40. And whatever you do, don't ask for kitty porn because if you do, right away bells go off and they'll make you for a cop. With their crash course on the pornography industry behind them, the two opened Gold Coast distributors in a warehouse near the Miami airport. Ostensibly a blue jean outlet, the real business operating out of the store was a distribution of adult films and magazines. Unbeknownst to a number of criminals who would visit the location, an electronics expert for the Bureau had wired the building with cameras and microphones. Much valuable and irrefutable evidence was gathered there over the coming months. Livingston and Olofsky began making contacts with lower echelon players, but they were so effective that before long, they had done what Kelly had deemed impossible. They were able to infiltrate the close-knit ranks of the country's pornography leadership. These guys were good, recounted Kelly years later. Quote, out of all the people they dealt with, only two figured them out. Ironically, the danger was not in the discovery of their true identities. No criminal in his right mind would knowingly murder a federal agent. The danger was that the gangsters might mistake them for informants. An example of the peril they lived in was manifested in a trip to New York to visit Robert DiBernardo's operation. They were warned by one of his associates not to cross him. Quote, there are plenty of people who would kill for DB. But whether they were discovered as cops or not, pornography had become a dangerous business. Kelly later stated that he knew of about 80 players in the business who were either doing at least five years in prison or had been murdered. As time went on, obscenity investigations continued to establish significant contacts with big-time pornographers. During their time on the case, they made 25 first-class flights to various cities around the country, even one trip to Hawaii to purchase child pornography. Many of these trips were to porno conventions. Nowadays, these gatherings have become almost glamorous, but in those days, they had to be presented as get-togethers for legitimate magazine publishers. Patrick Livingston and Bruce Olofsky continued to build their cases against the main pornographers. Their covert operation was so secretive that even other agents didn't know about the case. 
After about a year, prosecutors with the Justice Department opened a grand jury investigation and began presenting evidence which the agents continually supplied. Kelly describes the logistical nightmare involved. Quote, We had a room about the size of a big bedroom full of obscene material that we were going to present in a trial on 50-plus defendants. That's a lot of pornography. On top of that, we also had an 8,000-square-foot warehouse, which was full of extra stuff that we weren't going to use in the prosecution. In his book, Lost Undercover, author Ron Labreck describes a dangerous situation that arose toward the end of the MyPorn investigation when Livingston visited Michael Zafferano in New York. This extended excerpt describes exactly what he experienced. As a powerful mob boss, Zafferano played the game in classic fashion and was typically insulated from the daily work. It was primarily because of his less public stance that the agents had never met him. Pat decided to force an encounter, flying to New York to confront Zafferano in his Times Square office, located near his Pussycat Theater on 42nd Street. The confrontation, however, was unnerving. Pat unexpectedly encountered the Mafia figure in the hallway outside his sixth-floor office. Zafferano was a menacing man whom Pat immediately feared, especially since he was unarmed. He knew he would have to make his undercover character totally believable. To this end, he kept the conversation as vague as possible until Zafferano acknowledged some mutual acquaintances. When they moved from the hallway into Zafferano's back office, however, Pat pushed too hard with his questioning, asking whether it was true that one of Zafferano's acquaintances had gone to jail for him. The pornographer immediately tensed as if a revelation had come to him and a grim look came over his face as he told Pat to get out and never come around here again. He accused Pat of being a police officer trying to set him up. Pat left the office quickly, running down the stairs to the street rather than waiting for the elevator. He felt a rush of adrenaline as he took a cab back to the airport and returned to Baltimore. It had been a potentially dangerous situation, but despite the fact that he had been kicked out of the office, Zaffirano's statements during the meeting were enough to link him to others under investigation so that he, too, could be named in an indictment. This episode marked the end of the undercover phase of the operation. On February 14, 1980, 400 FBI agents began making arrests in 16 cities around the country. 53 defendants were arrested in all. By the time the dust had settled, 45 defendants in the My Porn investigation had been successfully convicted. One of the targets who didn't go to prison was Michael Zafferano. He dropped dead of an apparent heart attack when agents attempted to arrest him during the nationwide roundup. Robert DeBarnardo was convicted, but his conviction was later overturned. No matter, he disappeared in 1986, murdered on orders of a powerful mob boss. Unfortunately, the biggest culprit in this story escaped practically unscathed. The pornography industry has tripled in size since those early days and, more importantly, has managed to gain a degree of credibility in the mind of the American public. Today's leaders in the industry are more likely to be young computer geeks like Seth Warshavsky, owner of Internet Entertainment Company. It seems highly unlikely that there will ever be another MyPorn investigation. The FBI continues to pursue obscenity cases, but 
for the most part has confined its attention to child pornography. The lack of concern shown by most Americans over the effects of pornography on our culture has stymied any momentum law enforcement previously had. The sad fact is that the dirty business of hawking obscene material appears to be a welcomed addition to the new global community. At the end of the day, as much as people might know that watching porn isn't a great choice, they still watch it. And I have to think one of the common reasons for that is that in the back of our minds, we're thinking, this can't be that bad because how is this really hurting anyone else? But while it's easy to think that porn is relatively harmless, the fact is that's just not true. Nate Dancer, Pure Life Ministries Director of Ministry Outreach, had a history of porn use himself. And he confronts this myth head on by exposing some of the direct and indirect effects that viewing pornography has on other people. At 8.30 p.m., Mike's phone rang. It was Jill, his fiancée. He sighed and let it go to voicemail. What could she possibly want to talk about? They had just spent the day together. 30 seconds later, she called again. Again, he ignored her call and continued staring at the computer screen. Again, 30 seconds later. 20 minutes later, he closed the laptop and casually dialed his fiancée's number. Where were you? Jill yelled, half screaming, half crying. I tried calling you three times. Baby, what's wrong? He asked, feeling guilty that he hadn't picked up. She was almost hysterical. While I was driving home, some guys stopped next to me at a stoplight and said some really nasty things to me. I rolled up my windows and locked my doors, but then they got behind me. They turned their lights out and got right on my tail for almost five miles. I was freaking out. What were you doing? Mike was instantly filled with shame. He had been watching porn. All right, Nate. Well, I wish I could say what we just heard, uh, while it is a fictional snippet, was something that wouldn't happen. But unfortunately, I'm sure as you can relate, as I can relate, uh, pornography and sexual sin just puts you in some just weird and awful situations. Um. And that's kind of what I want to talk to you about because there is this lie that pornography portrays that it's only affecting me. And sometimes it takes something like that to happen before you realize, oh, yeah, this is impacting other people. But um, let's talk about that some more because I think it can be hard to really grasp that. And, And just by way of background, can you speak to where we are at with porn in our culture as a whole and also kind of what your backstory is when you were involved with it? I know for me, it was just years where I didn't care that this habit was going on and I basically tried to function and live a normal life and nobody would have known. So what about you? Yeah, unfortunately, that thing you just heard, that is me. I'm that person. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. Man. Yeah. I mean, I you had sent it to me, but I just assumed it was a made-up story. When I was growing up and I was involved in pornography or sexual sin with, with a girl or something like that, there were times kind of uh, twinges of guilt. Um, there were times where I even made some attempts to change, but there was really 
nothing in it that had to do with my relationship with God. It was it was more of like I don't want to be this kind of person or this isn't good for a relationship or even this isn't what godly men do, but godly men was almost completely divorced from a relationship with God. It was just, well, a man of true godly character would never do such a thing, so I should try to change. But there was no relationship between God and I. And so I wonder um, how many people are in that same kind of category where they have a faint idea that this is wrong or that this is not what people in the American evangelical subculture do, and so I should probably stop, or this is affecting my relationship with another person, so I should stop. But, um, you know, I mean, we're even getting now to the point where I, I, I would guess that in the next five to ten years, you're going to have voices in the evangelical church saying that it's not really that big of a deal. I th- I think it's inevitable. When you have so few people who are speaking definitively against pornography and sexual sin as such, and when you have very few people saying things like, those who are involved in such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, just like the Apostle Paul said, or those who are sexually immoral will not inherit the kingdom of God, then it just becomes very, very easy for people to imagine that this isn't really that big of a deal. Yes, should I change? Absolutely. Yes, does it affect my relationship with God? Yeah. And would it be best if I left this kind of life behind? Sure. But there's almost nothing out there anymore that is really giving people a compelling biblical argument for uh, the evil of pornography and why it must be forsaken if you're going to call yourself a Christian. I, I think it's kind of ironic that even though you're right, there is this sense that, hey, porn's not a big deal, although I don't think people would probably say that, but it's just it's just there. It's the attitude that's there, like you're saying. But, I mean, nobody, even if that's true, would want their porn habit to come way out in the open for everybody to see. Yeah. So what is going on in our thinking that gets us to believe that this problem is just, hey, it's just something that's affecting me and not that big a deal? I think it's twofold. Um, number one, pornography is so accessible, and so you can just access it on your phone. Whereas before, you know, maybe in the 1970s or the 80s, if you're going to go after pornography, you ha- you really had to make some kind of a risk. There was a risk of being publicly exposed as you walked into an adult bookstore and someone noticed you, or you went to a theater and someone noticed you, or um, you sought out a prostitute and you were caught. Now it's just download an app onto your phone and you can have endless pornography. So I think that's part of it. But the other part is just... This is how the world, or this is how American culture sees everything. There's an extreme individualism in our society, and so 
the idea is as long as what you do doesn't directly infringe upon my rights or my welfare, then it's fair game. And, I mean, that's just the mentality that we've kind of bought in in America, and then it's even uh, seeped into the church. Well, obviously, we're talking today because you see this problem as something that does affect other people. But what would be your argument for that happening if, like you say, for instance, a guy is viewing porn and he's just doing it in the privacy of his bedroom, and that's all that's going on? Like, how is someone else being hurt by that? to use that argument. Yeah, because I think, let's just imagine that a person knows absolutely without question, I can watch pornography for the rest of my life and no one will ever find out. So that, in a, in a case like that, you might say, well, then he knows that his pornography use is never going to affect anyone else, right? His wife is never going to find out. His kids are never going to find out. His church is never going to find out. And so there's nothing that will cause any kind of discomfort or pain from his issue because no one else will ever find out about it. But the problem is that, okay, yeah, no one's ever found out and maybe no one ever will find out. But are those the only kinds of effects that someone's behavior has on the people around them or the ones that they know about? Well, what comes to my mind is like with a drug, that would not be the case because there would be the side effects where someone might not know what the problem is, but they're seeing, right, like what a person is starting to behave like. And it's like, what is this person involved with that's causing them to act this way? Yeah, right. Exactly. I personally think it's naive to imagine that what you do in secret doesn't affect anyone else. Because all we have to do is just look at other examples to find out that how we live affects other people. I mean, okay, so if I go out today and I throw myself off of a bridge, okay, I'm the only one who physically died. And and you're saying that no one else is going to be negatively affected by this in whatever way? Some people will be deeply devastated. Others will be uh, will have insecurity about their own lives. Some people might be inspired to do the same thing. So it, it's very very naive to imagine that what we do in secret never. Um, never touches other people, even if they don't understand exactly how they're being affected. Okay, so one thing that I know about pornography from my own experience and then also just from being here, when you are watching pornography, you are sowing a spiritual corruption into your nature. And guess who's going to reap the corruptions? Someone else. Because when you sow pornography, oftentimes what comes out of that is anger or an indifference to life or a violent temper or uh, deceit. And all of those things 
are coming up from this pornography use, but it's the people that you interact with that are going to reap the consequences. Because when your wife comes to you and has some kind of question about things you've done in secret and you lash out at her um, in order to cover your tracks, who's the one who's been affected? It's her. Yeah, she might not know exactly why you've done what you've done or or if you've deceived or whatever it might be, but th- those people are the ones that are going to reap the consequences for what you are doing in secret. So absolutely, your life of pornography or someone's life in pornography directly affects other people. You can't divorce the kind of person that you become and how that affects other people from what is causing you to become that kind of a person. I'm going to tell a little more on myself here because one of the unfortunate side effects I found with porn use was that it caused me to isolate and really turn inward. I remember in my life in college and grad school, just how insulated I was. And basically, I withdrew from everybody else around me. I'd go to my classes and maybe occasionally I would show up at church. But then as soon as it was over, I would just make a beeline for my room where I was living, my computer. Most of the time, I was just off by myself. And obviously, being that way is pretty depressing when I look back at it. That's not really much of a life. But So it was easy to kind of, in the back of my mind, think I wasn't really affecting anyone else. I mean, that lie was just there because I wasn't even around anybody most of the time. And so that probably had something to do with why I didn't really feel a lot of the guilt I should have felt at the time when I was in pornography. Just for the sake of argument, let's imagine that you were marooned on a desert island and just had a cell phone and there's no one else and you're never going to come in contact with anybody else and um i mean this is a completely ridiculous argument but i'm just saying just for the sake of the of the argument the truth is that any kind of sin has already affected someone else and that someone else is jesus because if you understand the gospel The heart of the gospel is this, that God created man for fellowship with him. And that fellowship is contingent upon man's nature because light and darkness cannot dwell together. And so when man fell into corruption and into sin, the fellowship was cut, not because of some arbitrary judgment by God, but because God cannot dwell in his righteousness and holiness with sin. And so just by very nature or by, or by virtue of his nature and our nature, there's no possibility for fellowship. But he was He manifested his love for mankind in such a way that he took upon himself the nature of sin so that we could become the righteousness of God, according to Paul, and thereby fellowship has been reestablished between us. And so if a person says, 
well, this pornography use doesn't affect anyone else. What about Jesus? Because in order for mankind to be reconnected in fellowship with God, God had to take on the sin of mankind onto himself. That's why Isaiah 53 says, we looked at him and we imagined that he was he was smitten and afflicted by God, he was, that he was punished because of his own fallings, his own failings, his own sin, but that's not true. He took upon himself the punishment for our transgressions. The, the, the peace that we enjoy with God was given because he took the punishment that would make it possible for us to have peace. And so, there, you, I mean, okay, if you don't care about God at all, then maybe, yeah, you can just say, well, this doesn't affect other people. I mean, but you still have to completely ignore the body of evidence against that. But if you believe in God and if you have any heart for God at all, you have to already admit, my sins have already affected him because he didn't have to do what he did for us. He could have just let us continue on into destruction, but the the um his determination to have fellowship with man necessitated that he take on the punishment for man's sins i know a lot of people who hear this will already know the gospel and you know those truths you just articulated and i guess my testimony is is when that gets to the point where it doesn't really mean anything or maybe somebody is hearing that and being like Okay, well, that doesn't really move me. I mean, that's that is to me one of the things that looking back I can see the effect of pornography. I mean, it just yeah. totally numbs you. Yeah. Yeah. And because the reality is, I mean, God, you know, the little bit I have seen of his love is like he really is moved by this. It yeah. does affect him. Yeah. But man, it's it's scary to get to that point where you can't really feel that. Yeah. Yeah, and when you have no concern about how it affects him or yeah, it just it shows the utter selfishness of pornography that you lose the ability to understand how it affects him and that in a lot of ways if you're honest with yourself, you don't really care about how it affects him. Um it and and just imagine then if you are that selfish, how is that not going to affect other people? Yeah, in ways that we we didn't see at the time right. when we were in it. Okay, well, moving on, um, you mentioned these direct impacts that porn has on different people. What might be some of the indirect impact that we miss at times? That's a good question, because undoubtedly, what we do in secret affects people directly— but it also affects people indirectly. And here's how I think about that. Ephesians tells us that believers were created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So there's a plan for all of us, some kind of life that God has intended for us to live out. Okay, but Jesus also tells us that just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, so neither can you unless you remain in me. Now, if we think about sin 
as being something which is cutting us off from the heavenly influence of Jesus or the spiritual influence of Jesus, then I think what we can start to understand is that if we're just giving ourselves over to something evil and sinful like pornography, the the influence of our heavenly vine is not going to produce the kind of fruit in us that needs to be produced. And so I just think about how many how many fathers are unable to provide good spiritual guidance for their children because of what they're doing in secret. They might not be actively harming the child. They might not be lashing out at them or cutting them down or um, or hurting them physically. But how many times has that child needed solid spiritual guidance, but the father, because of what he's done in secret, doesn't have that ready word? The, the child is asking, what do I do in this situation? But the father has been so spiritually sickened or, or deadened because of pornography, he doesn't know what to say. Or he's, um, or some, some um, high school student is in a situation where he should be standing for righteousness in, in the midst of his group of friends. But because he's been filling himself with the... Uh, the mindset of pornography, he just kind of goes along with the crowd. Now, did he do something actively to harm the people around him? No. But are those people going to be affected because he didn't do what was right? Absolutely. So you can just think of uh, uh, many, many spiritual scenarios in which a person who has given themselves over to the poisonous influence of pornography is now unable to affect people in a righteous way, and that is absolutely affecting the people around them. These kinds of things are so good to consider because I hope that they stir someone up to take pornography seriously, but I mean, again, you remember what it was like. It is a yeah. strong force and has a strong grip on yeah. s- on people's lives. Um, if somebody is still hesitating about really getting serious and dealing with porn in their lives, what would you leave them with about why it really is important to take this seriously? One of the things that I love about the Word of God is that it doesn't pull any punches. You know, I love that it always speaks the truth to us. And so there are a lot of warnings in Scripture. There are a lot, you know. And a person who hears this about pornography affecting other people and doesn't take it seriously, you're going to be held accountable. That's what the Word of God teaches. You will be held accountable for the things that you actively do to another person because of pornography, and you will be held accountable because of things that you did not do because of pornography. Those things are stacking up against you, not just uh, the actual act, but all of the effects. Those things will follow you into the light of judgment, and you'll have to give an account. But I also love the Word of God because it tells us that God is still wanting us to 
He wants us to be forgiven. He wants us to be cleansed. He wants us to be spiritually empowered. It is his, it is his desire. That is the whole point of the cross, is that mankind can be set free from the old sinful nature and given the freedom to now walk in newness of life. And so if a person is hesitating, I would say that you need to be very you need to write down a list of your sins. You need to be honest. What does this sin say about me? How has how have I changed in the last year or 5 years or 10 years of viewing pornography? What things can I look back and say these things came into my life after I started viewing pornography because I they're all connected. And you need to get very honest about where you are because of what you have done. And then you need to run to the cross. There is no forgiveness without genuine repentance. There's no like, well, I'm just going to take these little mistakes and mess ups to God and he's just going to clean it all up for me. But anyone who really genuinely wants to be washed and cleansed and set free and restored and empowered to live for God, no matter how sinful their lives have become or how many people they've devastated because of their life, God's arms are still open wide. That is why the Bible tells us today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. And the significance of that word today is amazing. It just basically means as long as we are in this kind of um, period of time where people say today— there's coming a, a period where time is wiped out and we no longer use the word today. But as long as the sun is rising and setting and we're still saying today, then this is the time for salvation. This is the time for repentance. Don't put it off. That's what I would say. Do not put it off. Anybody stuck in a porn habit no doubt feels like the deck's stacked against them. And they're right. Our world is saturated with pornography. The message I hope you've been hearing today is that porn is more serious than many people think. Whoever you know that's affected by this, it's not just a small problem. It's essential to their well-being and their spiritual life that they get out quickly and that they find whatever help they need to make that happen. At Pure Life Ministries, we're here to help. And we literally pray every week that God will do for the multitudes out there that are trapped in this powerful sexual addiction the same thing he did for us rescue and save and deliver. Well, that's it for today's show. Thank you for listening today, and we'll see you next time. Purity for Life is a production of Pure Life Ministries. For over 30 years, Pure Life Ministries has been the go-to for those whose lives have been devastated by sexual sin. Visit us on the web for more information about our life-changing counseling programs and powerful teaching materials. Also check out our video clips of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed. All that and more at purelifeministries.org.